Welcome to OncoFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm pleased again this week that OncoFarm is brought to you by the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. And that's where I'm recording this on Friday, February 23rd here in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about immunotherapy today. It's all about immunotherapy these days. Uh, don't you know? So, a um, couple housekeeping things. Feel free to follow me uh, at Twitter, on Twitter, at FarmDietnib or the show. Uh, at Onco Farm Pod. Um, if you got questions, things you want me to get into, uh, ask those with using the hashtag Ask Onco Farm. Uh, we'll compile those or send me an email. Uh, bizarre, B O S S A E R, at etsu.edu. <clears throat> Let's get into it. Dervalumab, uh, approved February 16th uh, for unresectable stage 3 non small cell lung cancer. That's, that's the Walter White diagnosis, by the way. Um, without progression after chemoradiation with a platinum doublet. We should do a Walter White uh, Oncofarm episode. There's some things to learn on there about uh, Walter White. If anybody's a Breaking Bad fan, let me know. Maybe we'll do a, a Walter White uh, Oncofarm episode. Talk about, uh, was he EGFR mutant or not? Uh, how was he treated? Uh, we're getting off topic here. Back to Dear Value Map. It's a PD-L1 monoclonal antibody that was already approved for urothelial or, or bladder cancer. Uh, already. So this is based off the Pacific study, and this was presented um, at a meeting <clears throat> sometime last uh, last fall, maybe. Uh, maybe it was ESMO. Maybe it was a European meeting. Uh, that, anyway, as soon as it was presented, it was it was being discussed as potentially uh, the new standard of care in, in the Twitterverse. So this was by uh, Antonia and colleagues, published in New England Journal of Medicine, November 16, 2007. So these were unresectable stage three small non-small cell lung cancer patients. And for these patients, the 15% 15, uh, 15 of them are alive five years later. That happens to be basically the same number for all forms of lung cancer. So this is, you know, not a very good disease to have, obviously. Um, and the patients are not able to get surgery. And we think of for most solid tumors that surgery is the most important thing. The way these patients are treated is with concurrent chemoradiation. It's going to be a cisplatin, uh, usually a cisplatin-containing doublet like cisplatin etoposide, cisplatin, cisplatin paclitaxel. And the rationale behind doing this study and the way they did it is they did two cycles of chemoradiation followed by uh, either a year of dervalumab at 10 mg per kg every two weeks uh, for 12 months or placebo. The idea was preclinical work had shown that chemoradiation increases um, tumor uh, expression of PDL1. So if you imagine <clears throat> expression of PDL1 is a way to evade the immune system, one of the emerging hallmarks of cancer. So if you're think of it, I think of things very simply uh, to help me remember it. So if you imagine yourself as a cancer cell and you're being attacked by chemo and radiation and you can put out PDL1 as an invisibility cloak. And you've got all these other cancer friends. Only maybe the healthiest ones are going to be able to figure out how to put out that PDL1 coat. Well, then, so you've kind of selected for a patient population that has a higher expression of PDL1. Um, and then we're going to give a PDL1 inhibitor and do value map. That was the idea is that maybe chemo RT can. Um, you know, change this cancer profile, this tumor profile, so that it's going to, so that the immunotherapy will work better. Um, this was 700 patients, a little over that, randomized two to one. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, two thirds of them received a volume one third placebo. 
It was roughly 50-50 between stage 3A and 3B, roughly 50-50 between squamous and non-squamous histology, and roughly 50-50 based on how they did with chemo-RT. Um, about 45 to 50% had stable disease after chemoradiation, meaning the cancer didn't grow. The chemoradiation just played defense. And about 50% had a partial response to chemo. Really only 1% to 3% um, in both groups had a complete response or a complete resolution of their cancer. Uh, the median age here was 64. 70% were male. 70% were white. Did it work? Well, the progression, median progression-free survival was 16.8 months in the Dervalumab group versus 5.6 months in the placebo group. So more than a three-fold increase in median overall survival. And this increase was, was maintained at 12 and 18 months. So if you look at the slope of the progression-free survival curves, which was the primary endpoint, um, they stay roughly the same distance apart throughout the whole, um, throughout the whole curve. Um, you could park a car between these uh, Kaplan-Meier curves for progression-free survival. Uh, sometimes you'll see um, an area where you can park a, a person, but maybe not a, whole, not a whole car between these Kaplan-Meier curves. So it seems that this benefit of Dervalumab is consistent as time goes on. Um, the 18-month progression-free survival was 44.2% for Dervalumab versus 27% with placebo. And again, we would expect that 27% in the placebo group to go down to near 15%, um, you know, three years later. So if that 27% is going to go down by half to 15, if that 44.2% only goes down by 50%, you're looking at 22% five-year survival. If that were to be true, and again, the overall survival data are, are immature at this point, that would be a, a significant increase in potentially cure for these patients. If that were to happen, that would be a, a home run. Now, if it drifts down to maybe the five-year overall survival in these patients later on is, is 16, 17%, then that's, that's an improvement maybe. Um, but at this point, we don't know. The way I think of this is imagine you're at a baseball game and the batter hits a screaming line drive headed towards the fence. You know it's going to be a base hit. Uh, at worst, it's going to be a double, but you don't yet know if it's going to clear the fence and be a home run. I think that's where we are with, deval with Dervalumab. We don't know if that overall survival data is there, but clearly it's a very active drug in this patient population. clearly prevents um, progression and de or delays progression. Um, I didn't even get into the response rate um, in this arm, but certainly some of these patients had responses on Dervalumab. Uh, and again, it'll be useful to see more follow-up to see what the crossover looks like flump from placebo, that's the, that's the other question that needs to be answered beyond, is there an overall survival benefit? Is the benefit best if you give Dervalumab right after chemo radiation, or could we reserve immunotherapy for disease progression if and when it happens? So that was something that I think people had been expecting was this approval for Dervalumab for this patient population. Um, so, so that's gonna be, uh, certainly is important now. How important in the future uh, remains to be seen as, as we're used to in, uh, in the Oncopharm world. So uh, keeping with, the, you know, it's all immunotherapy these days, there were guidelines put out by the American Society of Clinical Oncology about dealing with immunotherapy um, toxicity. Now I saw somebody uh, on Twitter say, great, we've been waiting for these, and somebody else, uh, I think it was, Leanne, yeah, it was Leanne Norris, said, well, 60 pages just to say, uh, give steroids, uh, fellow Hopa, Hopa colleague. Um, 
So um, I was kind of putting off looking into the thing. It is all going to be uh, steroids, and there's a, certainly a lot of just give steroids. But there's a little bit more uh, nuance to that than I was even aware existed. So we're going to get into the some basics of this, or get into uh, these guidelines. <coughs> Pardon me. I'll point out there are other guidelines out there as well. I found one from um, the uh, Society for Immunotherapy Cancer Toxicity Management Working Group that had invited ASCOINS and other um, some other folks there. They had some really great figures. Um, and tables in that curve displaying the toxicity. And in general, you know, combo treatment with immunotherapy, so it'd be ipilimumab or CTLA-4 monoclonal antibody, and uh, either a PD-1 or a PD-L1 monoclonal antibody. Co combo treatment tends to have more toxicity uh, than IPI alone. And IPI has more toxicity generally than a PD-1 or PD-L1 monoclonal antibody alone. Now, before I go into some of the, the things that we learned here, uh, from these guidelines. I want to read something. This is straight from, uh, from the abstract. Much of the evidence consisted of systematic reviews of observational, so non-randomized, observational data, consensus guidelines, case series, and case reports. Due to the paucity of high-quality evidence on management of immune-related adverse events, recommendations are based on expert consensus. In other words, we don't really know the best way to treat this, these toxicities. We know of ways that have been done. We know of, way, we know of treatments that have uh, been done and have worked to some extent. Um, but anyway, this provides, a, it's a really good resource and I would suggest you keep it in, in, your, in your white coat pocket um, because it's gonna help figure out what can you do if you suspect an immune-related adverse event to immunotherapy uh, not just to uh, to rule out other causes, and there's an important piece in here for physicians in ruling out other causes, but then what does the treatment look like to manage that, and when uh, are you able to restart, or do you have to hold your immunotherapy? Uh, an important thing that's mentioned here is the term high suspicion. So if somebody starts on immunotherapy, and then they have some complaint, we should all have a high suspicion that that could be caused by immunotherapy. Uh, in other words, if, if you get a call in the infusion center and the doctor says, hey, have you ever heard of such and such happening after nivolumab? Your response may very well be, no, I haven't heard of that, but I think we should have a high suspicion that could happen. Let me go look at the guidelines and see how we can work together to rule out other causes and what we should do going forward. Um, in general, if it's a grade one toxicity, um, you usually would not have to hold immunotherapy, but just monitor. For a grade two toxicity, you're usually holding therapy and giving steroids. However, unlike the PI and a lot of things that would say, give one to two mix per kg, there are certain scenarios where you can get by at a lower dose of steroid, like maybe half a milligram per kilogram of prednisone or methylprednisolone, which the guidelines treat as interchangeably dosed, which is not necessarily true. Now, for a grade three to four toxicity, so that's somebody that's hospitalized, I think of it, grade three, or in the ICU for a grade four toxicity, you're talking one to two mg per kg per day of, of prednisone or methylprednisolone. Now that dose could be even higher, up to two to four or even one gram for certain cardiac uh, conditions like myocarditis or certain um, you know uh, neurologic manifestations of immune-related adverse events like transverse myelitis and some things like that. And then there's a section here about managing hematologic toxicity, which, you know, like autoimmune hemolytic anemia or autoimmune thrombocytopenia, which I think uh, oncologists and hematologists have a pretty good idea uh, of how to treat that. Um, there's some useful stuff in here. Um, really good data on, or not good data, 
I already said that there aren't data. It's a lot of consensus. But some solid recommendations about treating um, hypothyroidism uh, and using just thyroid replacement versus versus steroids. Same thing with adrenal insufficiency of using just hydrocortisone plus or minus fludrocortisone versus higher doses of steroids unless it is a grade 3 or grade 4 uh, adrenal insufficiency. Requiring hospitalization, ICU admission, things like that. A um, lot of great information here. I don't have time. Obviously, uh, in the podcast, I cannot go through everything. Um, so, so some of the things that, that I learned that I had kind of known, but it's reassuring to see written down, or maybe I didn't even know. But if somebody comes in with colitis, if after high-dose steroids for three to five days, that's the time to start considering drugs like infliximab or other immunosuppressants. Um, <clears throat> typical treatments for hypothyroidism, anybody who's symptomatic, put them on levothyroxine or if their TSH is above 10 and asymptomatic, you treat them with that. But you should always rule out uh, hypophysitis or kind of a pan, uh, hypo, uh, uh, kind of an all-encompassing hypopituitaryism. Um, uh, and one thing that I did not know, or hopefully I knew it and forgot it. In any case, I didn't know this, but if somebody has um, you know, a dr- severe pituitary deficiency, you start this, st- and that would include downstream from that, uh, hypothyroidism. You start the steroids first for a couple days before your thyroid replacement uh, because that could actually cause an adrenal crisis if you started the levothyroxine first. Um, there, there are side effects caused by immunotherapy uh, mentioned in here from case reports and case series that I had never heard of. Um, you know, things like peripheropathy, which, which I have heard of uh, and seen once, but it's really reassuring to have some place where it's all uh, you know, written down um, and everything here. So it's real. It's really a, a very helpful resource to have. I would encourage you all to to print it. And if you don't have time to read the 60 pages, uh, put it in your pocket. And again, have that high suspicion that any side effect or any complaint somebody has after starting immunotherapy could very well be due uh, to uh, the pembrolizumab or, or whatever immunotherapy drug they're receiving. So the last thing I want to mention is, and I tweeted this out earlier in this week, there is um, a New York Times article describing essentially a case series of successful immunotherapy treatment in four women with hypercalcemic small cell ovarian cancer. Now the science behind this is a little bit interesting because, and that was the point of the article, is this is a disease that has a low mutation index. So we think of immunotherapy as working well for diseases where there are a lot of mutations, right? And those would be cancers caused by carcinogens. So that's that's lung cancer and bladder and renal cell carcinoma caused by smoking. It's it's melanoma caused by sun exposure. Um, well, this is a disease that doesn't have that, and yet immunotherapy still worked. That was the point of the article. What I found most interesting is that a physician asked to join a support group um, for women. Uh, he was a specialist in, in, in dealing with patients with these cancer and asked to join a support group. And that's how he learned that women were talking about, I've been receiving this immunotherapy and it's worked. And that's what led to this case series. Uh, and this piggybacks off to my own experience uh, recently uh, talking at a, a myeloma support group. Uh, I had developed a relationship with uh, a caregiver of a patient and was asked to, to speak. And, and what I did basically was um, I said, the month before at your meeting, uh, just ask for questions and then send them to me and, and I'll answer them. It's just an ask a pharmacist thing. And it, I learned as much from the patients as they possibly could have learned from me. And I think that 
there's a lot that we can learn from patients <clears throat> uh, by listening to them a little bit more uh, or even going to support groups if they're willing to, uh, to allow us to, to attend or to, to watch in online support groups. Um, I'm always interested at, um, you know, what patients are saying about their oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors and how they're learning to manage their toxicities on their own since uh, to some extent that they, they may be on their own assessing and treating their toxicities and what they're they're exchanging in support groups uh, and what maybe they're afraid to tell us as clinicians. So that's what I have today for immunotherapy. We're going to get back to doing some uh, the, the Landmark Journal Club discussions and talking about some foundations, but there's always so much going on in immunotherapy uh, and with uh, oncology um, pharmacy. So I wanted to touch on this. Really haven't touched on immunotherapy much so far in the Oncofarm uh, podcast era. As always, find us on iTunes, find us on Google Play, rate us, give us a nice review, tell us what you'd like to hear more about, and, uh, and I will cater to that as I can. I hope you guys all have a great uh, weekend and ensuing week. Take care. <laughs>